Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love God and love your neighbor. An expert of the law once asked him, Who is my neighbor? Jesus responded with a story. In his story, he explained that a Samaritan, a man of little standing, stopped to help an injured man after two respected religious leaders had each passed the man by. Jesus concluded this story by asking an interesting question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor? Neighbor, as Jesus defines it, isn't a noun, it's a verb. That's to say that being a neighbor is not simply something you are, it's something you do. It's not just being somewhere, it's being someone. Think about it this way. It's possible to live near someone and not be a neighbor as Jesus describes. You can be a neighbor without neighboring. As Jesus shows, neighboring involves two actions. First, taking relational initiative to reach out to someone. And second, expressing the love of God in a tangible way to those in your natural path of life. So imagine your neighborhood. If you are here, who are those around you? Do you know their names? Are there ways you can initiate friendships? Needs you can help fulfill? How can you be a tangible expression of the love of God to those in your neighborhood, or in your classroom, or your cubicle or office space? How are you neighboring? Jesus says our neighbor is anyone who is in our natural path of life, and neighboring involves initiating and expressing the love of God. Loving God means loving your neighbor. And this, Jesus says, is the greatest commandment. Morning to the 10 o'clock service here at Grace Church. Glad you guys are able to be with us this morning. Like Clark said, if you're a guest, a special welcome to you. We hope you uh, get that gift that we have for you at the Welcome Center. This is a way of us saying thank you for being here. Today we're uh, continuing. This is our third part in a series that we started called Neighboring. And so if you're just jumping in, basically what this series is all about is we're really kind of looking at um, the greatest commandment that Jesus gave. And so some of you might remember there was a, a particular occasion where a man came up to Jesus and he said to Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Like, what's the one thing, if you could boil it down, that God really wants, that God really requires? And Jesus, of course, he answered him and he said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he went on, he said, but the second is like it. You have to love your neighbor as yourself. And the first week we were together, we said, that's kind of interesting. Because here, this man comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what's the one thing I should do? And Jesus says, actually, there's two. There's two things. He asks for one thing, Jesus gives him two. And what we see is that in Jesus' assessment, that you cannot separate this idea of loving God and loving your neighbors. Or the, the way that we put it uh, in the first week is we said this. We said that first commandment loving, right? That if I love my neighbor, or if I, if I love uh, God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, that, that first commandment loving is going to result in second commandment living. That if I love God, then I will love my neighbor as myself. It is the practical expression of loving God. Those two things are so closely associated that they're absolutely inseparable. And so it's because of that that in this series we've been really talking about that. We've been focusing on the second part of that commandment and we've been saying what does it look like practically speaking for us to love our neighbors? And really the big idea of this whole series, if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, is we really said this. We said that the big idea is we want to imagine what if we weren't just simply people that went to church? What if we were a church that went to people? What if we weren't just people that went to church, kind of, you know, as a sort of a side part of our life and the Jesus thing was confined to one hour a week on Sunday? What if we were actually a church that went to people, that we actually loved our neighbors as ourselves and took the great commandment 
seriously. And so we've been really kind of talking about that conversation together and looking at different aspects of that conversation from week one and, and sort of navigating through some of those things together. And one of the things that we said is we said that for those of us who follow Jesus, and of course, I know not everyone in this room today follows Jesus, but for those of us who do, we said that sometimes what happens is we look at that commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves, and we make it so broad and we make it so general that we never get specific with it. Right? We're like, well, we're to love everyone as we love ourselves. And we aim big and we miss big because, uh, because we look at it in a very broad and general sense. And so in this series, we said what we want to do is we really want to make it practical and we want to get really specific. What does it mean to love our neighbors and how can we actually walk away in tangible ways and do that? And so some of you might remember if you were here for week one, we said there's three ways that we want you to engage in this series, three ways. We said the first thing we want you to do is we want you just simply to identify we want you to identify who are my neighbors, right? Now, of course, we know biblically speaking that according to the Bible, everyone is my neighbor, right? Everyone, regardless of, of their past, regardless of their age, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless, everyone's our neighbor. But we said, let's just talk real practical about where you are in your life. Who are your neighbors? And so if you were with us, you might remember we showed you a very practical grid. And I'll just show this to you again real quick. This is actually a part of our graphic for this series. And we basically said, if that center house, that kind of reddish orange house, we said, if that's your house, like where you live, literally your, your house or your apartment or whatever, we said, can you identify the people who live in those boxes around you? Now, of course, not every neighborhood works that well. They don't look like this. But for the most part, right, do you, do you know the people who live in those boxes? And so we asked some questions. We said, do you know their names? Do you know their last names? First names, last names. We said, do you know anything more about them? Like, where do they work? Their kids' names. Do you know anything about them? And then we asked this question, a little convicting. We said, do you know anything more about them than what you can simply observe by looking out your window? Do you know, have you heard their story? Do you know anything about them? So we said, we want you to identify. Or if you're a student, right, um, in your class at middle school, your class at high school, if that's, your, if that's your, your desk in one of your classes, who are the students who sit around you? Do you know anything about them? Do you know their name, their first name, their last name? Do you know any part of their story? Do you know more than what you can simply observe without interacting with them in a meaningful way. We said at work, right, in your cubicle, so that's your cubicle or your office, do you know the people who work, and I understand not everything works as cleanly, right, but the question has just simply been this, can you identify those who are in your immediate surroundings? Let's get real specific with this thing. Do you know your neighbors in these ways? And that's kind of what we talked about. So the first thing we said, I want to challenge you to simply identify your neighbors. Here was the second challenge. We said, we want you to start praying for them. And in particular, we said, let's get real specific. What if you picked three, three neighbors, either in your, in your neighborhood or at work or in your natural pathway of life that you could begin praying for by name? And so we encourage you to do that. And there's a couple ways that we wanted to remind you to do that because if you're like me, good intentions can oftentimes just fall short because I don't have the practical help. And so we wanted to give you some practical help. And so we gave you a couple things. One of those resources were these bracelets. And these bracelets that we have, they're out there for free. If you didn't grab one, you can grab one. Basically, these are prayer reminders, okay? If you guys are like me, these annoy the heck out of me. I, I don't like wearing bracelets. It just kind of agitates me. But every time it agitates me, it serves as a reminder for me to pray for those three, right? And so we've encouraged people, take a Sharpie marker, write the, the first names of your three people on the inside. I actually had a guy come up to me this week, and he's like, I've been writing it in marker, but it keeps rubbing off on my skin. My wrist is like totally black. I'm like, well, just keep writing it. It'll be fine. And, uh, and so just, just keep doing it and, and pray for those people. These bracelets are just a practical, helpful reminder. On the outside of the bracelet, it just simply says, I love my church. And, uh, and this um, is actually just a way to maybe initiate a conversation 
I actually found this week, I had someone ask me about it, and it was awesome. Got a chance to just kind of talk a little bit about you guys and about this church, and it was awesome. But I will say that if you don't love this church, um, don't wear the bracelet. All right? I don't want you to lie. And, and we also said if you're going to be a jerk, don't wear the bracelet. All right? So if you know that day you're going to be a jerk, if you woke up on the wrong side of the bed, just leave it at home and uh, put, it, put it on the next day. We keep praying. All right? So uh, the other thing that we are giving you is magnets if you want to take those. It's just got that grid on it. It's a practical reminder to pray. And so if you want to, all that's for free on your way out. You can grab that and engage that way. So we said identify, pray, and then here's the last one. This is the big one. I want you to actually connect. I want you to connect in a meaningful way with some of your neighbors. Right? Make it an initiative. Move towards them in, in some practical way to, to just begin a conversation in some, uh, in some effect to connect with them. And so we said that you're creative. You could figure that out. There's a million ways to connect. You know those. And so you can do that. But we said if you need some help, if you're looking for some assistance and, and, and kind of a reason to connect, we actually provided one. And so right now we're engaging in something that's called the Shoe Project, all right? And the first week we actually gave out these postcards. We actually have a ton of these at the, uh, the Welcome Center, and so feel free to grab them. But basically here's what you do with this, right? You take it. On the back there's information about the Shoe Project. So you go to your neighbor. You say, hey, neighbor, or whoever it is. Um, right now I'm actually part of a group that's collecting shoes, uh, used shoes to send to Africa for people who need shoes during this time of the year. We're also collecting coats for people in Medina. Uh, as it's getting colder now, we're kind of doing that for people who are in need. And you just basically say, hey, would you be willing to participate in that? I'll, I'll grab some of your shoes. I'll come pick them up from you, get your coats. And what you do, you just say right here, this is my name. You write down your name. This is my number. Write down your number. And this is the date that I plan to come back and pick the shoes up if you want to engage. You give them this card, okay? And then you just have an opportunity to come back and get those shoes. We also would encourage you, if you want to, we're going to have a packing event where we're going to come together and pack those shoes. You can invite them to that, too. It's just, this is just an opportunity maybe to reach out and to make a connection. Uh, with the shoe project, over the past week, this is our first week uh, doing it. We've collected over 100 pairs of shoes, uh, over 15 coats. We're going to set a goal as a campus. We want to, we want to collect 3,000 pairs of shoes. Some of you are like, 3,000? My wife has 3,000 yeah. pairs of shoes. Some of you are like, my husband has 3,000. If that's the case, we got a problem, all right? So, uh, but, but that's, if that's cool, we can collect those and kind of engage in that way. And I just want to tell you guys, this has been a, it's been a really cool series, and it's been neat to hear how some of you are engaging in this series. I thought maybe just to begin with, I'd share a couple stories. There's, there's several, but I'll just share a couple with you for time's sake that have just kind of, I thought were just kind of cool. Um, these are a couple stories that I heard about. I asked if I, I could share them. Um, and I was told I could share them, so I just want to share these with you real quick. This first one um, comes from a young lady who goes to our church, and, uh, and she texted my wife, and then um, forwarded the, my wife forwarded the text to me, and, and then this is, this is what she said. I thought this was cool. She said, so funny neighboring story for you. Our neighbors are ninja style. So if you guys were here the first week, you might remember we talked about the ninja neighbors, right? The garage door up, garage door down, you never see them kind of thing. So they said, um, my, my neighbor is ninja style. We wave, they don't wave back, et cetera. They've lived in front of us for two years, and I'm ashamed to say that I have no idea what their names are. I was so fretting over reaching out, just afraid of their response. Anyway, I knew God was prodding me to do something, and so I baked some cookies and went over. I mean, how easy is that? Right? That's just awesome. Who doesn't like cookies? Baked some cookies and went over. Turns out, I wasn't met with a refusal, but with tears and a thank you. The couple is in their 60s, and the wife has breast cancer. I was on my knees after that, totally humbled and in awe of how God works in each of us. I just had to share. I thought that was awesome. And what makes this story really powerful, let me just share this with you real quick, is that the, the, the young woman who was reaching out 
herself is battling breast cancer. And just, just to watch, they've, I mean, they've been neighbors for two years. And now there's a meaningful connection and maybe, a, who knows? Just awesome to hear about that. Let me just share another one with you. This comes from a, a gentleman in our church. He said, I've been keeping the shoe project connection cards. I just showed you those on my desk at work. Since I have a lot of people that stop by, it's an excellent conversation starter as people ask me what it is. One of my coworkers today said that she's going to bring some shoes to me and is interested in coming to the packing event. She also was asking questions about our church. So in short, I was excited to see how seamlessly the postcard led to a deeper conversation. I saw and how cool, how practical is that? This guy just keeps a, a stack of these cards on his cubicle. People stop by, he engages with them, they have conversations. And here's the reason I tell you these stories, okay? Because I think for some of us, this idea of actually initiating a connection with those people that maybe we haven't connected with can seem very intimidating. A lot of times we get scared that we're gonna be met with refusal. We're scared that the person is gonna reject us or think we're weird. But by and large, most of the stories that I've heard, in fact, all the stories that I've heard, have been ones of uh, the people that I reached out to. They were so blown away, and it was so amazing, and they, they were so appreciative. And I'm just saying, it's an awesome thing. And so I want to encourage you to engage in the series in those ways, to, 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 uh, to, to kind of identify who your neighbors are, to pray for your neighbors, and then to reach out and to connect with them in a meaningful way. It's been a lot of fun. So I want to encourage you to engage if you haven't in those ways. But today what we want to do, kind of continuing with this conversation that we started a few weeks ago, I want to continue this conversation about neighboring. I want to talk about a very important aspect as it relates to connecting with our neighbors. Now, uh, I will just say, I think that first and foremost, this conversation is incredibly important for those of us who follow Jesus. Very important. And uh, I think that the topic we're about to dive into is actually, um, is actually one of the major barriers that sometimes keep us connecting with others. Okay, this is huge. But I also think that if you're not a Christ follower, if you're just a person that's investigating Jesus or you're not real sure you're bought into all this stuff yet, you're not sure where you stand with all that, I think you're gonna get a lot out of this message anyway because this is just practical teaching from the Bible. So whether or not you believe in the whole Jesus thing or not, I think there's some practical stuff that you could take away from this message as well, okay? Here's what I wanna talk about. I wanna talk about this. How do we, and I mean all of us, how do we connect with people who disagree with us? How do we connect in a meaningful way with people who disagree with us? Like I said, this is important for everybody because for all of us, the one thing we all have in common is there are people that disagree with us, right? There are people who, who we disagree with as it relates to lifestyle, as it relates to worldview, as it relates to beliefs, right? We disagree uh, so in some situations in various degrees, some very heavily on these items. How do we connect with people who disagree with us? We have people who disagree with us politically, we have people who disagree with us as it relates to what sporting team you're going to root for. Like, how do you connect with a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, right? Because clearly they're walking in sin and need to come to Jesus. How do you actually connect in a meaningful way with a person of that persuasion, right? How do you do it? How do you connect in a meaningful way? And this is an important conversation, like I said. So, so part, of this, part of this conversation, I just got to tell you, was, was largely influenced um, by a guy named Andy Stanley. He's a teacher down in Atlanta, Georgia. And he said something I thought was just absolutely brilliant. Here's what he said. He said, I'm just going to paraphrase him really kind of, kind of, but what he said is if you want to connect with people who disagree with you, you have to first ask a question and you have to make a decision. And here's the question he said that we need to ask ourselves. He said, if we really want to connect with someone who disagrees, disagrees with us, we need to ask, do I want to make a point or do I want to make a difference? I need to make a decision. Before I start investigating and connecting with people who disagree with me, I need to make a decision. And the decision is, do I want to make a point 
or do I want to make a difference? Now, this is so good. And the reason I, I thought the way he put this was so brilliant is because if you think about it, right, making a point is real easy, very easy. Making a difference is extremely difficult. And, and I mean, just think about it. This makes sense in every area of life. For those of us who are married, right, in our, in our marriages, we, we face disagreements. It's one thing that's common in every marriage. We all have points of disagreement. Now, let me ask you a question for those who are, who are married. Is it true? Isn't it easy to make a point? Oh, man, it is easy, right? It is easy. Now, let me ask you a question for those of you who are married. Does your spouse know your point? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Wives, do you know your husband's point? Oh, yeah. I, and husband, I told her. I told her. You know, I, and I said it five different ways. I told her. Does she, does, did she hear you? Uh-huh. Yeah. Does she know your point? Absolutely. Did it make a difference? Does she care? Right? That's, that's the more important question. Um, husbands, right? do you know your wife's point? Oh, yeah. She made it very clear. She spelled it out to me. Right? She, she, I told him. I told him and I told him and I told him. And then I, he, I told him again. And I don't think he's hearing me. Oh, he's hearing you. Right? Does he know your point? He knows your point. But the better question is, does he care? Is it making any difference? Making a point is easy. You can tell anyone anything, right? Making a difference is very, very difficult. Think about parenting. For those of you who are parenting, especially teenagers, because that's a really touchy time. Let me ask you a question. Does your teenager know your point? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you've lectured. You have told them about the kids in Africa who don't have <laughs> shoes. And you need to just forget about your city. You know, you've told them. You've made your point. Here's the question. Do they care? Is it making any difference? Here's a better question. When you were a teenager, did you care when your parents made a point? For me, I'm like, mm, sometimes, right? If you're a teenager, do your parents know your point? Did you tell them? I told them, and I, I you know, they don't understand. I, okay, yeah, but is it making a difference? Does anybody care? Think about it with, with um, points of disagreement in our culture, big ones, politics, <laughs> politics, religion, these items. Is it easy to make a point? Oh, absolutely, man. You just get on Facebook. Super easy, right? You just update your status. It's darn liberals. World's going to hell because liberals, right? Obama's the Antichrist. You can probably, you know, those, those Republicans. I don't know what this is, by the way. I guess this is <laughs> Republicans. Stinky Republicans. They smell bad. I don't know, you know. It's easy to make a point, right? Anyone can make a point. Get a, you get a bullhorn, yell at people, make a point. Get a sign, put some words on it, stand up on a public square. Easy, easy, easy to make a point. It's very difficult to make a difference. Now, this is important in every area of life, whether you follow Jesus or not. But I will say that for those of us who follow Jesus, I think this is more important than anything. Because, I mean, I don't know if you found this to be true. Maybe you agree with me. But I would say in our culture, what I have found to be, by and large, true in our culture is that the church is known more for the points that we make than the difference that we make. So I found, right? We all know this, okay? We all know that the church and the culture that we live in disagree very strongly on a lot of issues. We are all aware of that, right? Has the church made its point? Yes. Does the culture know that the church disagrees strongly on issues of sexuality, on issues of marriage, on issues of, you know, all that. Does, does the culture know? Yes. Have we made our point? 
Yes. Matter of fact, you know the number one thing Christians are known for in this culture? The number one thing we are known for is what we're against. We're known for being against homosexuality. That's the number one thing people know about the church. We're against homosexuality. Have we made our point? Yes. Does the, does the world know what the church believes about issues of human dignity and all, and all of the, the complications that come with that? And all, does, does the world know the church's point? Have we made our point? Yes. Here's the, the better question. Does anybody care? Is it making any difference at all? And here's the truth. If we want to actually make a difference, we have to approach things very differently. And we have to ask the question, if I want to actually connect with someone who disagrees with me, I have to make a choice. Am I going to make a point, which is very easy, or am I going to make a difference, which is very hard? One of the things that you see in the Bible with Jesus, with his disciples, with the Apostle Paul, is that these guys made a difference, man. They made a difference in a very impactful way. But when you look at the way that they did it, it is not easy at all. It was met with resistance. It was met with critique. It was met with suspicion. But they, were, they, were, um, they knew what they were going for. They wanted to make a difference and not just a point. So today, here's what we're going to do. I actually want to look at a passage of Scripture, and we're just going to take some tips from the Apostle Paul because in this passage, we're going to watch the Apostle Paul make a difference, and it's awesome. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you take them with me? Let's go to Acts 17. Acts chapter 17, all right? Now, let me just say that if you um, did not bring a Bible with you this morning, that's, that's totally fine. We actually have some for you. So you can just grab one of those Bibles in the chairs, maybe share with somebody. Turn to page 772 in those Bibles that we have provided for you. That's where you're going to find Acts chapter 17, Acts uh, 17, page 772 in those Bibles. Let me just say that if you're a guest with us, if you don't own a Bible, like if you just flat out don't have one or you have an older translation, would you do me a favor? Just grab one of ours and take it, all right? Make it a gift from us to you. Write your name in it. Some of you are like, I don't even believe in the Bible. Well, that's good news because owning a Bible doesn't require that you believe it. So you could just take one and we just think it's an important thing that you have one, all right? So go ahead and do that. So page 772. Now, <coughs> excuse me. As you guys are flipping there, let me just kind of give you a little background of what's going on. So uh, in this passage, we're going to find the Apostle Paul in a city called Athens. Now, if you guys don't know anything about the Apostle Paul, basically the Apostle Paul was a very religious guy. He kind of grew up that way. And the Bible tells us that as it related to the Jewish religion, the Apostle Paul was sort of like the head of his class, right? He, uh, he was a Pharisee. Um, the Bible tells us that he was kind of a religious leader. And he, when he first heard about Christianity, the message of Jesus, he vehemently opposed it. So he would persecute Christians. Uh, he would even, on some occasions, approve the killing of Christians. Well, the Bible tells us that this guy, Paul, Jesus got a hold of his life in a radical way. He had this encounter with Jesus that altered the direction of his life. And from that point forward, the Apostle Paul spent the rest of his life traveling around to distant cities telling people about Jesus. He was a missionary. It's what he gave his life to. So he would go from city to city to city telling people about Christ, Oftentimes when he would tell people about Jesus, it was met with, uh, sometimes it was met with acceptance. Most of the time it was met with resistance, sometimes even violence. So he keeps going around telling people about Jesus. Well, when we get to Acts chapter 17, we're going to find the Apostle Paul in this city called Athens. Okay? Now, Athens, back in this time, just like it is today, was a very important city. Okay, so Athens today is the capital of Greece. Back then, it was just a very, very prominent city uh, in Greece. Greece was conquered by Rome at that time, so it was a Greco-Roman city. But the thing that it was known for, Athens was, is it was really the primary hub of culture 
and, and of education. That's what Athens was known for. So this was where art and poetry, philosophy, kind of a, think about like a college setting, think about like an Ivy League school town, kind of like a Boston. That's what Athens would have been like. They would have been pumping out all of the culture. They would have been pumping out philosophy, pump, pumping out art, pumping out all of those things. That would have been kind of what Athens was known for. And so the Apostle Paul goes to this city, the city of Athens, which back in that time was sort of the intellectual epicenter of that world. And I want you to see what happens. So let's kind of go ahead and pick it up here in verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. Now, who's he waiting for? Okay, so one of the things that you need to know about Paul is that whenever he went to a city, he would take a group of guys with him, guys who could help him teach and preach and help him with other things. And so Paul gets there first. He's waiting for his team to catch up with him. And so it says, when he's waiting for them in Athens, he started to go around the city. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. All right, so imagine this. Paul goes to Athens starts to walk around the city, waiting for his guys to get there. So in the meantime, he starts walking around the city. And the Bible says as he's walking around the city, it tells us the emotion that he feels. I want you to notice it says he was greatly distressed. Greatly distressed. Now that's a very fascinating word. If you pull that back in the Greek, what it literally means is this. It means troubled to the core. He was twisted up inside. He was troubled to the core. It literally means to be aroused with anger, to the point of anger. So get this, the Apostle Paul goes into this city, city of Athens, starts walking around looking at the city, and the Bible says that the emotion he feels is one that he is disturbed. He is fired up on the inside. He is angry because of what he sees around him. In other words, the Apostle Paul comes into this city, and he, in his worldview, disagrees so vehemently with what he experiences that it causes distress in him. It causes anger in him. It evokes this emotion in him. Now, why was the Apostle Paul so frustrated, so distressed, so aroused to anger when he came to Athens? Well, one of the reasons that we know that is right here in this passage. It says he saw that the city was full of idols. It was full of idols. Now, one of the things we're gonna find out in this passage about Athens is that they were a, uh, a kind of a polytheistic, uh, religiously relativistic culture. And so they believed in several gods. Think about it for a minute, right? They were a Greco-Roman city, so they were in Greece. And think about the Greek gods. The Greek gods, man, they have a god for everything, right? You have a god for the sun, you have a god for the moon, you have a god for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner. You have a god for everything. It was like apps for them, right? They're like, oh, you're hungry? We got it. There's a god for that. You know, we totally got that. And so they, they worshiped these different gods, and they would set up shrines to gods all over the city. So the Apostle Paul's walking through the town. He's seeing that there's this polytheistic worshiping all these idols, and the Bible says that he's stirred to the point of anger. Why? Well, because Paul is a Christian, man. And as a follower of Jesus, as a Jewish man who was a follower of Jesus, he knew that, that worshiping idols was directly con contradictory to what Jesus wanted, right? The Old Testament, first commandment is worship one God, don't worship false gods. Jesus affirmed this. Worship the creator, not the created, right? And so the Apostle Paul comes into this situation and he sees these people are living a radically different lifestyle than he would live. He disagrees with them strongly, right? And so he is pushed to the point of distress. He's angry inside of himself when he sees this. He disagrees strongly. So what does he do? I know what he does. He gets, he gets a poster board and he writes real big on it. 
turn from idols or go to hell, right? That's what he does. And he, and he stands up on a corner and he says, repent, everybody repent because you're all a bunch of pagan idol worshipers. That's what he does, right? Right? I know what he does. He gets a bullhorn and he stands up and he says, first commandment says, don't worship idols. That's what he does, right? I know what he does. He gets on Twitter <laughs> and he's like, Athenians, these guys are terrible. This is what's wrong with the community these days. That's what he does, right? No, no, no. Why? Why doesn't the Apostle Paul do that? Because he's not interested in making a point. The Apostle Paul wants to make a difference. So what does he do? Well, watch this. This is so cool. Look at verse 17. So he, what's the word? Say it with me. Reasoned. So he reasoned with them in the synagogue with both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. What did the Apostle Paul do? He reasoned with them. He reasoned. He talked to them. He started a conversation with them. This is what he did. No, notice what it says, too. It says that he went to them in the synagogues, which that would have been in, in, the, in Athens. That would have been the religious hub where kind of all the religions would kind of worship. And then he also went to the marketplace, which is really important. The marketplace for these guys was like the center of their social networking. So I want you just to think about it for a minute. When we think of marketplace in our current culture, we tend to think of the grocery store, right? We tend to think of Bueller's or, or Giant Eagle or Mark's or wherever you go, the place where you go to buy your groceries. That's the marketplace. Well, back in this culture, the marketplace was much, much, much more than that. They didn't have TV. They didn't have internet. They didn't have any of those things. And so whenever they wanted to exchange ideas, whenever they wanted to hear what the news was, what was going on, they went to the marketplace. That was the place where you would interact with other people. So what's the Apostle Paul do? I want you to notice what he does. He goes to them on their turf, goes to where they are, and he reasons with them. Now, even, even the word itself, reason, right, it carries with it some great connotations. It carries with it the connotations of mutual respect, carries the conversations of dialogue. As a matter of fact, the Greek word for, uh, that we have uh, for reason is the word that we get dialogue from. It's two-way, not a one-way thing. He comes to them. He doesn't speak down to them. He speaks with them. He, he, he reasons in these places, in a place that makes sense to them. And why is he doing this? I'll tell you why. Because he doesn't want to make a point. He wants to make a difference. And so he reasons with them. I put it th this way in my notes. If we're going to take, if we're going to take cues from uh, the Apostle Paul, I think one of the things that we can learn is this, that if we want to make a difference and not just a point, we need to begin making conversations, not arguments. We need to begin conversations, not arguments. Engaging, respectful. Remember what Peter says in 1 Peter? He said, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect with dignity, right? And so what does the Apostle Paul do? He starts a conversation with these people. And guess what happens? It's wild. You won't believe what the people do next. It's absolutely insane. Take a look at it here in verse 18. It says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers begin to debate with him. Now, the word debate there, once again, it's, it, when we think of a debate, we tend to think of like two people arguing that's not, this, that's not what was going on in this setting. This culture was one in which it was like a university town. So whenever they had uh, philosophical ideas, it was their practice to talk them through, to have a debate, an intellectual debate. So Paul starts a conversation, and what do they do? Get this, they talk back. They, a conversation breaks out between these two parties. The Bible tells us 
that the, uh, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers were the ones who began this conversation. Now, just so you know, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were the two primary philosophical branches of that time. So these were like the major beliefs of that culture. So they start to engage with Paul. Look what it says. So some of them said, what is this babbler trying to say? Like, this guy is just, well, you don't know what he's talking about. Others remarked, well, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So, so they begin to have a conversation. They begin to exchange ideas. They begin to reason together, to debate together, to dialogue together. They have a conversation. And then watch what happens next. This is so cool. Verse 19. So then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Like, can you, would you tell us? They're asking him, would you please come to our meeting and tell us what you believe? I mean, that is a no-brainer opportunity right there, right? Would you come? Verse 20, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. That's such a funny thing to say. I'm just going to start saying that from now on. You're bringing strange ideas to my ears. Yeah, it's awesome. And we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent all their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So it was kind of like college, right? They just spent all their time talking about ideas. So I just want you to catch this. This is so cool. The Apostle Paul comes in the city. He sees these idols. He is distressed. He is angry. He disagrees. But he says, I want to make a difference on a point. So he goes to these people on their turf. He starts a conversation with them. They invite him. Hey, man, this is crazy what you're saying. May you come to our meeting? They would, what they would do is they would meet this place called the Areopagus. It was a place where they would share ideas. They would debate back and forth and kind of wrestle things out together. They're like, would you come to our idea meeting? We would like to hear your ideas. And we would like to, would you give a presentation and come to, they invite him. Paul is making a difference. People are listening. He has something meaningful to say. Now, what he's about to do next, he goes to this meeting. I just want you to see this. This is brilliant. Baha brilliant. Four syllable brilliance right here. This is so awesome. Watch this. Apostle Paul, verse 22, goes to the meeting. He stood up in the meeting. Now, notice the meeting he was invited to. This isn't just him standing up in the middle of some other guy's meeting, he's not standing up on the street corner on his soapbox. He is standing up in the place that he was invited to come stand up in. He stands up and he said, people of Athens, people of Athens. How respectful is that? He didn't stand up and say, pagan adulterers, idolaters. That's not what he said. People of Athens, very respectful, right? I see that in every way you're very religious, as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found that there was an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant. Now, by the way, ignorance in our culture, that sounds very degrading to call someone ignorant. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you're worshiping something you don't know. You, you admittedly do. You have a temple set up to an unknown God. He says, so you're ignorant to the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, I'm telling you, this was so smart because here's what Paul did. He came into the city, and, and if you were in ancient Athens, one of the things that you would have noticed was that they had, like I said, altars to every god. There was a god for everything. So they had an altar to every god. There was an altar to the sun god, to the moon god. There was an altar to the god of fertility. There was an altar to the god of whatever, 
So many gods. And what these people did, because they were polytheistic, is they basically said, well, in case we missed one, we'll set up another altar to the unknown god, kind of the junk drawer god. If we forgot something, yeah, we, we, got, we got a god for that. He's fine. It's covered, right? So the apostle Paul is walking around the city, and he sees this temple to the unknown god, and he says, there it is. That's my connecting point right there. That's my entry point into the conversation. Now, this was absolutely and totally brilliant. Now, I just want you to observe real quick with me in these verses, just from verse, what is it, from 22 down to 23. Observe with me the activities of the Apostle Paul. Look what it says. He says in verse 22, I see that in every way you're very religious. Verse 23. Um, For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found. What are all those descriptions telling us? It's just telling us, Paul's been studying them. Paul's been getting to know them. He says, I went around your town and I started to learn about you. I see that you're very religious. I'm religious too. He, does, he doesn't start with where they disagree. He starts with where they agree. I see that you're religious. I'm religious too. He says, I've noticed something about you guys. I've been observing you carefully. What is, what is Paul doing here, by the way? I'll tell you what Paul's doing. Paul is doing what Paul always does, right? He is investigating. He is learning. He is getting to know the people because he wants to make a difference and not just a point. I put this in my notes. If you want to take notes with me, you can jot this down. If we want to make a difference, we have to seek to understand before being understood. We need to seek to understand before being understood. The Apostle Paul took time to get to know what these people were like, to study the culture, to figure out what they valued, what they appreciated, what they what they connected with. And then he looked for meaningful conversation points in which he could talk about the gospel. He's like, what's my in here? How can I, how can I have a conversation with these people? Where's, where's the point that, of agreement that we can begin with as we start this conversation? Why did he do this? Because he wanted to make a difference and not just a point. And so he wanted to seek to understand before being understood. You guys, if we want to make a difference, one of the best things we can do is listen Ask good questions. Listen for the response. Ask questions like, why, <laughs> what do you value and why do you value it? Um, what, what is it that, that, that makes you tick? What is it that makes you angry? What are the things that you worship? That, these are questions that we need to be asking. One of the things, I, I heard someone say this one time, I thought this was such a great little quote. They said this, they said, the most interesting person is the most interested. I love that. Ask questions, listen, get to know, study, observe. If we want to make a difference, it's a starting point. So the Apostle Paul comes in, he says, I notice that you're very religious. I've been studying you. I've been watching you very carefully. I've noticed some things about you. You know, there's some things we agree on. But, but what I want to do now is I want to tell you about the unknown God. I notice you have a temple that says to the unknown God, and I want to tell you about him. Now, at this point, Paul would have earned listeners Everyone now is leaning in. Why? Because they knew what he was talking about. They're like, yeah, we know what you're talking about. Yeah, tell us about this new God, the unknown God. And so Paul, now watch. Now he's just going to flat out tell the gospel. Now he just goes with it. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples that are built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Now, notice in those verses real quick, what he basically said is, 
The God that, the God that we worship, the God that I worship, does not need a temple, does not need an altar. He is speaking against a lot of things now. Verse 26. For um, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. And though he is not far from any one of us, here's Paul's message in a nutshell. He says, let me tell you about the true God. He's bigger than you think. He is not created. He is not someone who needs our help like these other gods. He is the true God. And he says, and he's bigger than you think, but he's closer than you can imagine. He's right at your fingertips. And if you are willing to, he wants a relationship with you. This is the gospel. He preaches the gospel to them. It's an amazing thing that he does. Now watch what happens in verse 28 because once again, this is Paul's brilliance. He says, for in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now here's how much she knows in verse 28. This is so smart. Notice that both of those uh, phrases there are in quotations. So notice, for in him we live and move and we have our being. That's in quotes. The second part, we are his offspring. Those are in quotations. Why? Because the Apostle Paul is quoting something. Like, wow, that's mind-blowing. <laughs> no, he's quoting. What is he quoting? He is quoting from their poets, from their songs, from their culture. That's what he's quoting from. He's like, I'm, I'm extracting lyrics from the most popular songs in your culture. I'm taking some, some, of the, some of the lines from the newest Taylor Swift song, right? And I'm putting it into this context to have this guy. What is the Apostle Paul doing? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's doing what he always does. And, and we, we learn this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, some of you might remember this, the Apostle Paul said, he said this, he said, I will become all things to all men that by all means I might win some. That's what he says. I am willing to do anything that it takes short of sin to help people understand the gospel. That's what I'm going to do. And that's what the Apostle Paul is always doing. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jewish person. To the Greeks, I became like the Greeks. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. To those who are free from the law, I became one like who is free from the law. Why? So that by all possible means, I might win some. I'm trying to make a difference. I'm not trying to make a point. And so I will do whatever it takes. I don't know if you guys ever noticed this, but whenever the Apostle Paul talks to the Jewish audience, you know where he starts? You take a guess where he starts? In the Old Testament. Why? Because for the Jewish people, the Old Testament was the word of God. And so he would come in and he'd say, hey, uh, let me talk to you about the Old Testament. I'm a master of the Old Testament. I grew up with the Old Testament. He's like, and let, me, let me show you some prophecies about Jesus. And he would start there and then he would get to the gospel. But notice when he's in Athens, where does he start? He says, let me talk about some of your poets and your philosophers. And let me talk about some of the, what is he doing? He's changing his method. The message never changes. The method always changes. Listen, if we're going to take a cue from Paul, if we're going to learn, here's, here's what we need. If we make a difference, we have to change the method, not the message. I'm not talking about compromising the truth of the gospel for those of us who follow Jesus. But I am talking about being strategic, diplomatic, and thoughtful about how we connect with the method. Remember, I, I was listening to... Um, Pastor Jeff, one time, he made a, Pastor Jeff is, a, is the senior pa pastor of all of our churches at Grace, and he uh, is kind of spe specializes at the Bath Campus. But on this point, he shared a story one time, I'll never forget, I thought it was so cool. He was talking about, um, there was a, a guy who was uh, a grandfather to teenagers, and uh, he went to our church, and he was trying to connect with his teenage grandkids. And so he went to Jeff, and he said to Pastor Jeff, he's like, Jeff, you know what's wrong with these kids today? 
And you always know a conversation's going in the right direction when it starts that way. He's like, do you, you know what's wrong with these kids today? And Jeff is like, I'm sure you're going to tell me. And he's like, the problem with these kids today is they don't write. They don't write anymore. And Jeff was like, not like drugs or crack, or, but writing, that's the problem. He's like, yeah, writing, that's the problem. He goes, kids don't write anymore. He's like, I write my grandkids letters. They don't ever respond to me. I write them cards. They don't ever respond to me. I want to connect with my grandkids. They won't write. That's their problem. They don't write. So Jeff said to him, I thought this was interesting. Jeff said, actually, they do write. They write all the time. He's like, they just write on their phone. They text constantly. They text their thumbs off. They text so much. So he's like, you want to connect with your grandkids? Here's what I think you should do. Go to the Verizon. Buy an iPhone. Right? He's like, get their numbers. Help them figure out how to use it. He's like, and then just text them. And, and so you know what this guy did? He went out and he did it. He got an iPhone, had his kids help him. And now he starts, they're texting back. His grandkids are texting back every day. So much so that the teenagers are like getting annoyed. Like, Grandpa won't quit texting us. And, you know, we're in class and the teacher took my phone away because Grandpa keeps texting us. And, and uh, what, what happened? Did the content change? No, 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 no. But the method did. The message never changes, but the method must change. Look, for some of us in this room, who are followers of Jesus, I know not everyone is. Some of us came to know Christ like early in the 2000s. Some of us came to know Christ in the 90s. Some of us met Jesus in the 80s. Some of us met Jesus in the 70s. Some of us met Jesus in the 60s. Some of you just met Jesus, like you're that, you just met him in person, you know, because you go real far back. <laughs> Took you a second on that one. Um, so, but, but you met Jesus. And listen, when we met Jesus, I met Jesus in the 90s, right? So when I met Jesus... The method was, was very culturally sensitive. The message was the same. The method was different. Sometimes I'm, I'm afraid that we hold so tightly to the method that we view it as on par with the message. Look, the message of the gospel never changes, but the method must always change. The culture changes, and so the method must also change. If we want to make a difference, not just a point, we have to be willing to adopt or to, to, to address the method, change the method, never change the message. So guess what happens? The Apostle Paul shares the gospel. They invite him to their idea meeting at the Areopagus. And the Bible says that everybody comes to know Jesus. Like they all repent and they cry and they all get baptized right there, right? Is that how it works? No, right? Let me tell you what really happened. So look, glance down with me real quick at verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, right, that, that, that little piece about when Jesus got up from after he was crucified, he rose again, that little thing. When they heard about that, some of them sneered. Some of them were like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. So, so not cool. Some of them said, we want to hear more about this subject. Some were like, all right, I'm not in, but I'm interested. I'm investigating. Help me understand it. Okay. Then look at this. At that, Paul left the council some of the people became followers of Paul and they believed. You have three responses here. Some people were like, that is so dumb. I don't believe it at all. Some people were like, that's interesting. I want to hear more. And some people believe. Now here's what I want you to get because this is so important. Paul made a difference here. He made a difference. But one of the things that you notice is that, is that at the end of the passage, some people were still offended. Some people were offended. But here's the key. It was not the messenger that offended them. It was the message. Look, guys, the gospel, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the gospel is offensive enough on its own. The message never changes. Think about it. The gospel is offensive, isn't it? Because what's the central teaching of the gospel? If you don't know the gospel, here it is. First and foremost, you're more messed up than you think you are. Is that exciting to hear? 
Is that, is that good news to your ears that you're more messed up than you think you are? The Bible says you're more messed up than you think you are. Some of you are like, I know I messed up. And I'm like, you don't know how messed up you are. You're like, you're messed up. I'm like, I don't know how messed up I am. I'm still discovering the layers of my sin. I'm messed up. The Bible says you're more messed up than you think you are. The Bible says this. The Bible says that if, if you've even called someone an idiot out of anger, you've committed murder in your heart. You're like, I think I'm a good person. The Bible says you're not a good person. Um, the, the Bible says that if you look at anyone lustfully, that you've already committed adultery, which I know all of you have done because I've been up here preaching this whole morning. And so I was like, <laughs> some of you are committing murder now because I said that. And, um, but you know what I mean? It's like all of it. Is that, is that fun news to hear? Is that offensive? Yes. Very offensive. But the good news is we're more messed up than we think we are, but we're more accepted than you can believe. Jesus Christ came to die for our sins and he offers us full forgiveness. That's the gospel. Is that offensive? Yes. We don't need to be that. The gospel's offensive enough, right? And so let the message be offensive, not the messenger. The apostle Paul got this. Did he make a difference? Yes, the apostle Paul made a huge difference. And even though in this passage we see that some rejected it and some were still had questions at the end, you know, the Bible tells us that the church grew more in the first 300 years than it has in the past whatever. Amazing, it made a difference. If we wanna make a difference and not just a point, we need to adopt some of these things that we learn from the Apostle Paul. Let's pray together. Jesus, I just want to say thank you for your words to us this morning. Man, thank you for preserving for us um, this story, preserving this account of the Apostle Paul in Athens. For our benefit, you've preserved this, and I believe that. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to take cues from the Apostle Paul. Lord, give us a heart and a passion and a love that says that we are willing to do anything short of sin to help other people connect with you. Jesus, you were the one who did this originally. You went to every length to connect with us. You became one of us, you even died for us. And so Jesus, I pray that we would be willing to go to any length to, to connect with those who disagree with us. Help us not just to make a point, God, but to make a difference. Everyone knows our point. I pray we'd make a difference. Help us, Jesus. I pray we'd be a church that makes a difference, that doesn't make a point. I pray that we'd be a church that's not known for what we're against, but known for what we are, for our love, for our compassion, for, for our dedication to caring for others in these ways. Help us to be like the Apostle Paul. So Lord, teach us today, give us grace and give us help. Give us wisdom because we need it. I ask you these things in Christ's name, amen.